ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. NATO is expanding rapidly. How will this impact the future of the alliance? That's this week on Foreign Policy Playlist. I'm your host, Laura Ross Brautellum, and for today's show, we want to share an FP line about the future of NATO. FP Editor-in-Chief Ravi Agrawal sat down with U.S. Ambassador to NATO, Julianne Smith. They talk about the organization's goals moving forward and where the United States fits in. Here's that conversation. Welcome to FP Live, Foreign Policy Magazine's forum for live journalism. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief, and it's my pleasure to be your host for the next 30 minutes. Our guest today is Julianne Smith, America's Ambassador to NATO. We'll bring her on in just a minute, but first... FP Live discussions are where we bring experts and insiders to discuss world affairs. Unlike cable TV, there are no ad breaks. We get to dive deep into the issues. It's a perk of your FP subscription to get to ask questions live. So please click on the Q&A button on Zoom and write in. Don't forget to tell us your name and which country you're in. We'd love to get to your questions. Now, world leaders from across the globe met in Madrid last week for a NATO summit at what is likely the most critical time in the organization's 73-year history. These summits occur quite infrequently and only happen at key moments in the alliance's evolution. Key developments took place. NATO's members extended formal membership invitations to Finland and Sweden. The group announced that thousands of new troops would be deployed along NATO's eastern flank. And for the first time, NATO declared China to be a strategic challenge. It is no secret that since Russia's invasion of Ukraine well into its fifth month now, NATO has completely transformed. It's more united, it's better funded. But even so, Russia has of late been making some key battlefield gains in its war in Ukraine, taking over the Luhansk province of the weekend. That was one of Putin's main war aims. His military is now shelling Donetsk, the neighboring region in Donbass, and it's likely setting its sights on trying to take control of that area as well. So what happens next? What can NATO do? How united can it stand? How will America's role evolve? My guest today is US Ambassador Julianne Smith. She's held that role since November of last year, played a huge part in NATO's change over the last few months. Before her role there, she served as a senior advisor to the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. During the Obama years, she served as then Vice President Joe Biden's national security advisor, And crucially for this audience, when she wasn't serving in government briefly, she contributed to FP and served as the editor of Shadow Government, 
Foreign Policy's Forum for Opposition Policymakers and Experts to Analyze U.S. Foreign Policy. Ambassador Smith, welcome to FP Live. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Great to do this with Foreign Policy. It's great to have you here. Um, I want to dive right into some of the news that came out of last week's summit. So Finland and Sweden were formally invited to join NATO, of course. Turkey was one of the only 30 member states to block their bids um, until the two Nordic states agreed to a set of demands, including handing over Kurdish separatists that Turkey views as terrorists. Um, can you give us a sneak peek behind closed doors about some of the negotiations that went on and especially your role and America's role? Yeah, happy to do that. So you're right. When Sweden and Finland walked through the front door of NATO uh, just a few weeks back and submitted their formal letter asking for full membership, we did hear some concerns raised by Turkey in particular. And what happened immediately following that particular moment was that both the NATO alliance and the three countries in question began a series of conversations conversations about how to best address Turkey's concerns. So here within NATO at the headquarters, within the room where all 30 allies sit at the table, we heard from the Turks firsthand about the issues that were front and center of their minds, what was holding them back from supporting Sweden and Finland in their accession to the alliance. And we tried to not only hear them out, but see how we might be able to address some of those concerns in particular as they related to terrorism. Then what we urged all of them to do separately from NATO was for them to immediately meet. We all encouraged them to pick a location up to them. They opted to meet early on actually in Turkey. So Sweden, Finland and Turkey all sat down at not the heads of state level, not even a minister level, but a lower level to get negotiators to the table to start understanding again what Turkey's concerns were and what, if anything, Sweden and Finland could do to alleviate those concerns. What they settled on was what we're referring to now as a joint declaration. And that declaration was negotiated through a series of meetings, not just that first meeting in Turkey, but they came together at different instances, both virtually and in person, and worked through a series of steps that could be taken by the two aspirant countries. And help them address the concerns that Turkey had raised. Once that trilateral agreement was in essence signed, then Turkey came to NATO and said, look, we're in a position where we are now comfortable with having these two members join the alliance and we would like to proceed. And so what happened in Madrid was that the leaders, all the leaders of the 30 countries came together and could formally announce that a compromise had been reached, Turkey felt reassured some of the issues that they had raised and that the alliance would proceed with accession talks. Immediately, we moved towards accession talks. And then just yesterday here at NATO HQ, all the ambassadors of the NATO alliance came together around the table again with the foreign ministers of Sweden and Finland and signed the accession protocol. So big day yesterday for the NATO alliance. And what happens next is that every member of the alliance will have to ratify the agreement either 
either in their parliament or in our case in Congress. And that process is already underway. We've had a number of allies actually come forward and say that they've already ratified the agreement. So that's the path we're on. We hope that this will be finalized in the weeks and months ahead. And we're confident that we're going to be able to get it done uh, as soon as possible. So Ambassador, I have to ask, um, right as Turkey lifted its veto, um, Washington indicated it would support the sale of F-16s to Ankara. Are the two related? Well, actually, what's really interesting about this moment is that this was resolved by the three countries in question. All of us urged, again, the three of them to go off and have a conversation separate from NATO, separate from the United States. Now, of course, we had expressed our strong support for Sweden and Finland even before they submitted the formal letter expressing an interest in joining. And as you saw, the president, President Biden, did have a phone call with President Erdogan right before the summit to encourage a rapid resolution of these issues tied to their accession. The president then met with President Erdogan at the NATO summit. I think that meeting is all the, the contents of that meeting really are off limits. I can't get into that in too much detail. But you've heard President Biden even last year talk about the fact that the United States supports Turkey's efforts to modernize its F-16s, but that we have also messaged to our friends in Ankara, that this is also a question for Congress, and Congress plays a key role here. And that was a message that I believe the president delivered in very clear terms when he sat down with President Erdogan. Got it. Um, you know, from my understanding, there's no timeline for Nordic countries to join. The language seems a bit vague. Um, do you foresee additional challenges, uh, perhaps from Turkey moving forward? And I also have to ask, what power, um, if any, um, do they have to cause problems as the accession progresses? Well, as we go through the ratification process, we don't anticipate too many issues. We'll have to see how the Turkish parliament, how quickly they're able to ratify this agreement. We may have some additional bumps in the road. We don't know with certainty how it's going to proceed. But I think based on what we're hearing here at NATO HQ, we feel confident that the support is strong around the table by all 30 members. And we anticipate this hopefully moving forward in, in the months ahead. You're right. There's no timeline tied to this. In some cases, for some countries, such as North Macedonia and Montenegro, our two newest members before Sweden and Finland, it took upwards of a year. We don't think we're looking at that type of timeline. Again, given the security situation in Europe right now with Russia's war in Ukraine, and given the fact that you feel that strong support around the table. The last thing I will say is the good news if we were to encounter any bumps in the road, um, just as we did with the initial concerns that Turkey expressed at the beginning of this process, I mean, the alliance draws from its deep experience of dealing with situations when an ally raises its hand and says, look, time out, we, we have some concerns. We have 73 years of experience of dealing with those types of situations. NATO operates by consensus. It can be challenging at times and difficult, but we always find a way, one way or another, to build consensus based on those 73 years of experience. 
sounds like a lot of countries as well. Um, I just want to remind our viewers uh, that they can send in their questions and I'll take some of the best ones at the end. Um, but moving on now a little bit to more um, uh, broader questions, uh, Ambassador. Um, we had uh, Anders for Rasmussen uh, on FP Live uh, last month. You know, he was pretty blunt in saying that NATO overestimated the strength of Russia's military. He also said it underestimated Putin's willingness to wage war. Do you agree with that assessment? I think we have had many moments in the history of the NATO-Russia relationship where we have done our best, conducted our best assessment of what Russia is capable of, and we've tried our best to determine what President Putin, or in other cases Medvedev, what their intentions were. And sometimes we've been spot on, and sometimes we've been a little bit off, and I think what we saw in the wake of Russia going into Georgia in 2008 was a Russian military that struggled to meet its military objectives on the ground because of the fact that Russia seemed to also recognize those challenges and because of the modernization efforts that were undertaken in the wake of their operation in Georgia. Many of us assumed that the modernization efforts, the investments that they were making in their military at the time would necessarily result in a stronger, more capable military. Now, what we've come to find out is despite those investments, despite that very focused effort to modernize the Russian military, in fact, they have not been able to eliminate some of the core challenges that they've faced for many, many years. And by challenges, I mean things like logistics, where you've seen them struggle to feed their troops, to get equipment in a timely manner. They have chain of command, C2, command and control challenges. They've got morale challenges uh, that are very apparent on the ground. And we've also seen a situation where President Putin doesn't necessarily make his decisions based on what the Russian military is capable of. It was clear early on that the Russian military was encountering enormous challenges in getting to Kyiv and taking Kyiv, and they never succeeded in doing that. And in fact, as we all know now, had to back away and retreat and, and let go of that objective. Putin didn't seem to mind or care, or perhaps he was getting bad information on the, the ability of his forces to achieve that fundamental objective. So I think all of us, NATO allies in particular, but also the Ukrainians and many other countries around the world, are learning a lot in real time by watching this operation. We're learning a little bit more about Putin's calculations, how he takes decisions. We're learning a lot about the Russian military in real time, their weaknesses, their challenges on the ground to pursue this operation day in and day out. And what NATO will do, and, and we're doing right now, is trying to take all of that in and make our best judgments on the way forward, both in terms of NATO's relationship with Russia and what's needed to secure the eastern flank, but also in how to best support our friends in Ukraine at, at this moment. You're listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. We'll be right back. 
My name's Kurt Jaimungo. And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in Theories of Everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. So let me ask you this as someone who's been watching um, this war closer than most, um, you know, given your vantage point. Um, and given the fact, as you say, US intelligence has been quite accurate, spot on over the last few months in terms of revealing uh, what Putin might do um, over the next few days and weeks. What surprised you um, as you've watched this war evolve? Well, you're right. What the United States tried to do in the months leading up to February 24th, when Russia went into Ukraine, was to share as much intelligence as possible to make sure that allies collectively were on the same page and could make a common assessment on the best steps that we could take at the time to hopefully persuade Putin to take a different path, and then if not, to prepare for all contingencies. But despite the fact that the U.S. intelligence leading up to February 24th was highly accurate and now, in retrospect in particular, deeply appreciated by our NATO allies, I think there were some surprises along the way, and I think that goes back to what we were just talking about. I think the poor performance by the Russian military uh, was something that not all of us saw coming. I think those logistics challenges in particular um, really exposed some significant weaknesses uh, across Russian military forces. But I'll tell you what was also both somewhat surprising but incredibly inspiring, and that's the performance of the Ukrainian forces. We knew because we had been training with them for a long time, uh, particularly since Russia's attempted annexation of Crimea in 2014, that these were very capable forces, that they had a strong fighting spirit, and that they had learned a lot and trained uh, a great deal in the wake of 2014. But I think the way in which they've been performing on the battlefield, the way in which they've been able to push back in many cases against Russian aggression, their determination to succeed and their fighting spirit, it's really taken our breath away. And we've all been uh, incredibly impressed by their performance in, mm -hmm. in recent months. Yours and much of the world's as well. Um, uh, let me ask you this. Um, you know, the I want to talk about China. Um, it, when NATO declared China to be a security quote unquote challenge um, for the first time, you know, in a sense mirroring um, uh, Washington's uh, own foreign policy, give us a sense of how that played out, and and is 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 this also the stance of all of NATO's members? Well, the great news is that for the first time ever in a NATO strategic concept, the one that we just released, we now have China mentioned as a strategic challenge. And this is a big step forward for the NATO alliance. We obviously have spent most of our time in recent months focused on Russia and Russia's war in Ukraine. 
but many of us around the table here at NATO also felt compelled to ensure that the alliance acknowledged what China is doing in and around the Euro-Atlantic area. In particular, allies are very focused on the China-Russia relationship and the fact that these two have only recently announced this no-limits partnership. They've recently issued a joint statement on NATO enlargement. We're seeing them align on the same messaging as it relates to Ukraine. And because of those actions, because of the ways in which those two countries have joined forces in some ways in this moment, allies felt compelled to reference that. Now, all that said, there are different perspectives around the table. We all have different proximity to both Russia, different relationships and outlooks towards China, but we are a consensus organization. And the fact that China appears in the strategic concept for the first time is a big deal and it does reflect consensus across the alliance if we didn't have consensus if we didn't have 30 allies all agreeing on the importance of talking about china in this moment it wouldn't have appeared in the strategic concept at the end of the day so it is in there i think the language is strong I, I encourage people to take a look at it for those that, that haven't uh, walked out and read the strategic concept. It's worth flipping through and taking a look at that China language. I think it's it's very instructive and, and it so shows an alliance can I ask that you to can expand, adapt. Can I ask you to expand on what exactly it means to call China a challenge? So, so you know, you label it as such. Um, what does it mean in terms of how NATO acts? What it means in terms of how NATO acts is first and foremost, allies are in agreement that we need a better awareness. We need to strengthen our awareness of the challenges that the China-Russia relationship poses to alliance security. And we need to better understand and process what China is doing particularly as it relates to technology, where it is working quite actively to erode our collective technological edge. We need to look more closely at the investments that China's making in ports and critical infrastructure in and around the Euro-Atlantic area. We have to look more closely at economic coercion and how China uses that to shape the strategic environment in and around the Euro-Atlantic area. So what you're going to see is a lot more sharing inside the alliance in understanding what this moment means for NATO and the evolving relationship between China and Russia. But also over time, we're going to have to think about how to build resilience, how to create new tools to deal with some of these challenges. And an interesting twist on this is to think long term about how both NATO and the European Union can work together on this challenge. What's interesting here is that the EU and the US also work on the China challenge. In fact, the Biden administration has launched a new EU-US dialogue on China. So there's work done there through that channel, and there's going to be some ongoing work here inside NATO. So bringing those two organizations together could be useful in the in a sense, ahead. though, you know, when you look at the world's response to Western sanctions on Russia, for example, you know, there's so many countries that are sitting on the fence. You have the likes of India, other large democracies in South and Southeast Asia, in Africa. And one of the reasons why they sit on the, the fence is, you know, basic sort of disquiet uh, about, you know, the world 
uh, returning to sort of Cold War era blocks, some are calling it the return of non-alignment. But I noticed, uh, you know, when you were just describing um, what this sort of action against China could look like, um, that the China-Russia partnership was the first thing you mentioned, but there are many countries, um, you know, as evidenced over the last few months that don't want to specifically align themselves against Russia or China. More broadly, stepping outside of NATO for a second, what does all of this mean for the wider Biden uh, foreign policy? Well, I think this is a conversation that we have had several times here at NATO headquarters. We collectively, as an alliance, we've sat around the table and we've talked about the challenge of messaging, what we're doing vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine, NATO's role as it relates to the war in Ukraine, and how we can best tackle some of the misinformation out there. First and foremost, there is a tremendous amount of misinformation about a theory or a myth that somehow NATO caused this conflict. There's also a lot of mythology out there about NATO's involvement in the conflict. Russia likes to make this about NATO and Russia, when in fact it's about Ukraine and Russia. We've worked tirelessly here to make sure that NATO is not a party to this conflict, even though individual NATO allies are supporting Ukraine. This is not about NATO providing lethal support to Ukraine. We've been clear about that. But you're right to raise these messaging challenges. And you do have countries around the world that are asking questions, want to know more about NATO's role. And so what I think you're going to see in the months ahead is a much more focused effort on getting our story out, our narrative, that we did undertake several efforts leading up to February 24th, for example, to pursue some sort of diplomatic path. I think folks sometimes forget that. Um, so we have work to do in that space, and it will continue to be a part of our focus here at NATO. I want to bring in some viewer questions, but uh, the last thing I want to ask you before I do that is timeline. Um, how long will NATO stay committed to the war in Ukraine, to supporting uh, Ukraine? Uh, specifically, how long will America stay committed? And I ask because uh, there are already signs emerging, polls emerging, of support for um, you know, America's efforts in Ukraine beginning to dwindle uh, among the middle classes uh, in America, given all the other tensions here um, with inflation, with the economy. So what's your sense of timeline? Well, President Putin was absolutely certain, and I bet he's still certain, that he can wait us out and either actively divide Europe from within or divide Europe from the United States as it relates to the support for Ukraine. And what you heard at the summit behind closed doors all around the table in the private off-the-record uh, sessions was a strong, strong determination for all of us to stay the course, to remain united, to continue to showcase our common resolve as it relates to Ukraine and ensure that while we occasionally have differences or we have debates about the best path forward, that we stay united and we are able to maintain this moment and this level of support for Ukraine. That was but a I message that came across in stereo sound. Um, you know, just respectfully, but so, some of that is not in the control of, you know, diplomats, for example. Um, 
you know, if, and I, I know this question gets asked a lot. Um, I was in Brussels last week and I, I heard so many Europeans ask what happens after the midterms in America? What happens if uh, Trump decides to run again? How do we trust you? How do we believe that you will stay the course? And I know it's a tough question to answer. Maybe it's an impossible question to answer. What do you say to people when they ask you that? I do get that question from time to time. And what I say, I say a couple of things. One, my focus right now is serving this president and serving in the Biden administration. And so I'm going to focus on what's real and what's happening right now. I'm not going to make any predictions. No one has a crystal ball about the future of U.S. politics. So it's hard to say what happens uh, down the road in a year or two or more. What I will say, though, and what I often say to audiences, first and foremost, most, most importantly, is that the support for the NATO alliance in the United States runs deep among both parties. And you saw this even during the last administration where Congress was really tripping over itself to express strong bipartisan support for this alliance. They asked Jens Stoltenberg in 2019 to come and deliver a joint address to Congress. Why? Because they wanted to ensure that they were signaling how deep the support for the NATO alliance ran uh, among Democrats and Republicans. There aren't many things, as you know, that have and benefit from such deep bipartisan support, but fortunately NATO is one of them. Got it. Uh, let me take a couple of your questions. Um, I'll put two of them together uh, to you. Um, Olivia Ward asks um, if there's any move uh, underway to change the process of acceptance of new members from 100% agreement to majority agreement. This is for NATO. Um, her question, of course, is related to what we were discussing earlier about Turkey. And as you mull that, Ambassador, Timothy Reed asks um, uh, about Africa. Um, and, and he says it's a largely ignored area of concern to NATO, um, but Russia actually has been making great inroads in Russia, he points out. Um, so do you expect NATO to change or, or to add uh, Africa to its focus a little bit, to its remit? Um, is that something you personally would try to push for? Two questions. Two very good questions. So on the first one about NATO process, there are no discussions inside NATO about moving towards majority voting. The alliance has always operated by consensus, and I see no uh, change in that policy, certainly not in the, the near future, maybe not in the distant future uh, either. <clears throat> it's really a, a defining feature of, of, the, of the alliance. On the, on the second question about Africa, I mean, one of the things that you hear the allies talk about a lot, um, and it's more than, than a phrase, that's the 360 degree approach. And by that, allies are referencing the fact that they believe with great passion that this alliance cannot simply look east or north or south uh, or west. It has to look in all directions and be active in, in, in every possible direction from which um, uh, threats 
uh, arise. So we actually in Madrid, and this this was really an idea that came from our Spanish hosts and was widely supported across the Atlantic. We had a couple of sessions on what we refer to as NATO South, where ministers and leaders were able to sit down and talk about some of the challenges stemming from NATO South. Those sessions were fruitful, some interesting ideas bubbled to the surface. But yes, I think NATO allies can acknowledge that Russia and China actually are playing a pretty active role on the continent, and that this is an area that merits further attention by the NATO alliance. Ambassador, I know you have to go, so I'm just going to say thank you for giving us your time. You're an old friend of FP, so it's great to have you back. Thanks for the invitation. That was an FP Live episode. Our thanks to Julianne Smith for chatting with FP. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you want to suggest a great podcast, you can go ahead and email us at podcastsforeignpolicy.com. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe. This show is produced by Maria Jimena Aragon, Rosie Julin, and Rob Sachs. I'm Laura Rossbrow-Tellum. Thanks so much for listening. Till next week. In this new flexible world of work, we're all looking for ways to work better, smarter, and faster. With SAP Concur Solutions, you can automate your travel, expenses, and invoices into one connected workflow for an easy way to manage company costs. See every penny of spending even before it's spent and keep the process moving with handy apps so your team can work from anywhere. Move your business forward with SAP Concur Solutions. Visit concur.com to learn more.